Good morning to the rest of you. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 26 this morning. You know, we've been going through this book for a while, but here in chapter 26, the cross is right before Christ. He's literally hours away, and things are intense to say the least. At a level that most of us don't really like to consider, right? So intense for Christ that he's, he's recognizing that he's going to become our sin. He's recognizing that God's going to pour out all of his wrath onto Jesus. All of the judgment, condemnation, all that we deserve for our sin, Jesus is about to experience that for us. And I got to tell you, it would do us well to, to take some time, probably on a daily basis, to think about Jesus and think about, you know, not just the shallow stuff that we want to think about. I mean, it's, it's crazy to me sometimes how we so desperately want to be shallow. We want life to be cheap. We want life to be easy. We want life to be fun. We want life to be without cost. We, we want to think our salvation is given to us so that we can be selfish and self-centered and have as much fun and pleasure as the world can offer. We really want that. And I know sometimes we go, that's it's not true, Pastor. No, it is. It is. But man, when you want to talk about, when you want to talk about having life, and I mean life, life that supersedes the heartaches, life that overcomes, you know, the betrayals, life that gives you peace in the midst of the cancer, life that gives you hope when loved ones pass. If you want life, you've got to start dealing with Jesus, who he is and who we are in relationship to him. We, we don't get to be cheap. Matter of fact, there's no joy in just being cheap because being cheap goes from one kind of small joy to the next kind of small joy to the next kind of small joy with pitfalls in between every one because all we want is the next cheap kind of blessing, if you will. Man, Jesus is about to do something for us and for the world that's not cheap, but it is glorious. It is loving. It is sacrificial. I mean, it is pure. It is God's attitude <coughs> toward us as sinners. And we don't think about it very often because it's too hard. And we'd rather have something cheaper, right? But there he is on the night before he's about to die. And man, it's all settling on him, the weight of it all, the magnitude of, of all of it. And you and I should every now and then think about the fact that he would love us enough to go to those depths for our salvation. No one ever gets to tell me God doesn't love them. No one ever gets to tell me God doesn't love them. Because when we see Christ here fighting for God's will in his life, we see love displayed that can never be questioned. So Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. <clears throat> then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, 
and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may enter, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went again, away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Then he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, Lord, you are good. That's pure good. You are righteous and just. You are love and you are mercy and grace. And we see all of those things displayed perfectly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray, Lord, that as we look today into your word, that you would call us to be a people of prayer, that you would call us to be a people of depth, that you would call us to be a people of obedience and faith and faithfulness, and that you would call those who've never trusted you to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ today. Lord, we ask for you to move in great power today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week we talked about the Last Supper and we, we talked about some pretty crazy things. You know, we talked about Jesus saying that one of them would betray him and basically pointing to Judas as the betrayer. But he also said it would have been better for that man had he not ever been born. And Jesus is reminding us again of the magnitude of what it means to reject Christ or to betray Christ or to move away from Christ. And it means God's ultimate judgment. And so there's this heavy night as he's talking about somebody betraying him. He then takes the bread and he breaks it and says, you know, eat, this is my body. He takes the wine and he takes the cup and he blesses it and says, you know, drink of this, uh, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he, he's, he's basically establishing this Lord's Supper that we're going to take today. And you know what he's saying to them by eating and drinking of my death, my sacrifice, he's saying, I want you to participate in this. I want you to internalize this. I want you to depend on this. Like this is your food. This is your drink. This is your life. And I know sometimes we, we take the Lord's Supper and, you know, we, 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 we make all kinds of things out of it. We, we should search ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we shouldn't take this in an inappropriate manner. But sometimes we say, well, if you have any sin in your life, right, you shouldn't take it the Lord's Supper. I think that's false teaching. I think that's wrong. 
We take of the Lord's Supper because we say when we take it as followers of Christ, this is what we hope in. Christ Jesus alone is what we hope in. His life, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection is what we hope in. We don't hope in our goodness. We don't hope in our intelligence. We don't hope in our skill. We hope in Jesus Christ. And he established that night, take of my body, drink of my blood, know that I'm your life. And every time we come to this table again, we should celebrate that we have a Savior. We're not trying to be our own Savior. Every time we try to be our own Savior, we fail, right? And so we see that last week. He's bringing them to to really come to a place where we quit pretending. (coughs) We're such good pretenders. Anybody else a good pretender? We pretend like we're good. We pretend like we believe, but Jesus isn't calling us to pretend. Man, he's about to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, and he's like, you need to come to me, and when you remember, you remember me. I'm the glorious one. I'm the Savior. Well, then he, if you remember from last week, he he looks at them, and he says, all of you are going to fall away because of me. And what he was saying to these 11 most committed men now left after Judas is gone is that you guys, you're going to see the persecution that comes against me. You're going to see the cost of following me. You're going to realize that to follow me is not what you thought. It's not easy. It's not cheap. It's not insignificant. It's not fun. It's not about getting what you want all the time. You're going to see that the cost of following me is deep, and you're going to fall away because of me. And these guys, man, they're like a lot of us, right? No, we won't. Oh, no, we won't. Peter says, no, we won't. I'm going to stand no matter what. No matter what anybody else does, I promise you, I won't fall away. And Jesus says to him tonight before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And then he says, No, Lord, even if I have to die, I won't deny you. And all the other disciples, they say the same thing. I want you to hear now. I want you to hear. I want you to think. I want you to get, you know, honest with yourself and honest with the Lord because so many of us as followers of Christ, we would say those things just like they did. No, Lord, we'd never fall away. No, Lord, we'd always honor you. No, Lord, we'd always obey you. We'd always honor you with our lives. And we mean well. But I mean, let's just go a little further. He, he tells us in verse 36 that he came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And, and literally takes them out of the city to the Kidron Valley. He goes across the valley as it's ascending there on the east side. And he takes him to a place called Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane means oil press. It was literally a place where there would have been a walled-off area. There would have been olive groves in there. Uh, John calls it the Garden of Gethsemane. It would have been a very secluded place because that's what Jesus wanted. He wanted a secluded place. He wasn't, like, haphazard at this point in time in his life. As we're going to see here, he was really, truly dealing with some heartfelt struggles in his life, right? But he's, he's purposely going over and tells his disciples, you guys sit here 
while I go pray. That doesn't sound like any big deal to me and to us sometimes until we think about it. The Son of God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, the sinless one, who knew all things before he came, who was in control of all things while he was here, who knew the future, what God was going to do and what he was about to do. He knew all those things, and yet he's like, I have got to get away, and I have got to pray. I mean, it's kind of a crazy thought to us because for many of us, prayer is it's like the last thing we do. And, and I'm not talking about the, you know, thank you, Lord, for this food, amen, prayer. I'm not talking about the, hey, Lord, I know I you know, need your help today, so help me through the day, prayer. I'm talking about praying, where you come before God in your anguish, when you come before God in your struggles, when you come before God in your weakness, when you come before God in your desperation, when you come before God with your need, and you actually, you actually realize that prayer is a priority of your life. I mean, Jesus made this a priority. He knew he needed to pray. What a crazy thought from the Son of God. Because most of us, when it comes to prayer, we, our basic excuse is that we don't have time. That's just the basic excuse. We kind of try to figure out how we fit prayer into our day. Like we got to get up at a certain time so we can get to work at a certain time. We get off work at a certain time. We got to have this done for, you know, when we get home. So we're going to have to get this done before we get that done. And we, we work out this schedule. And then we tell ourselves sometimes, well, I'll get up early or I'll stay up late. But it doesn't happen very often, does it? I mean, real prayer. Again, real prayer. You think Jesus was really praying? You think Jesus was winking his eye at God? Hey, God, I really need you. Now, thanks, amen. Hey, God, I'm glad you're in my life. You know, thanks, amen. Hey, God, I need your, I need your guidance, but I gotta go. Thanks, amen. I think he was really praying. And you and I, for whatever reason, I mean, there's probably multiplied reasons that we don't pray, but one of them has got to be the fact that we simply don't see the need for it. Because quite honestly, we don't necessarily believe that it makes a difference. I mean, I don't want to know how many of you actually believe that prayer makes a difference, but I want you to, to know. Does prayer make a difference in your life? Do you believe that prayer makes a difference in your life? Because we're going to see tonight how much difference it makes. It makes a huge difference in our life. And yet, for many of us, if we really knew how powerful prayer was, we would pray, wouldn't we? And yet, man, prayer, it is like the most wasted time for many of us or the biggest battle for many of us or biggest distraction for many of us that we can name, and so we just don't do it. Well, Jesus, he takes his disciples out, he tells them to sit down, and he says, I'm going to go over there and pray. You and I should learn something from that commitment. 
This isn't the first time Jesus has made the commitment to pray several times throughout the Gospels. We read about Jesus going out and praying all night long. Have you ever tried to pray all night long? I've tried to pray all night long. I didn't make it. It's hard to pray all night long. It's hard to stay up all night long. It's hard to focus on God all night long. It's hard to pray all night long. But Jesus, man, he is committed. He's about to die. And he's praying. Well, it says in verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, I, I find this little passage to be interesting in and of itself because I mean, here's Jesus, and he's going to go pray, and yet he brings Peter, James, and John, and we'll talk about that a little more in a minute, but why, 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 why would he bring these men? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, but what might be even more revealing is it says he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he says he's grieved to the point of death. I mean, we're talking about a grief and a stress and a distress that is embedded in his soul. This isn't, I'm stressed over a job interview. This isn't, I'm stressed because I've never done that job before. This isn't, I'm stressed because I got some financial needs I mean, the weight of becoming the sins of the world and drinking the cup of God's wrath is beginning to weigh on him at such a level that he says, I'm distressed even to the point of death. And, and scholars debate what that exactly means, but it literally to Christ felt like he was dying underneath this grief and this distress of what was about to happen to him. And that's not normal. This isn't a normal response from Jesus. I mean, Jesus has been incredible in some pretty crazy situations. He was unflappable when, when they came to him and said that Lazarus, his friend, was about to die. He's like, this sickness won't lead to death. And then he says, well, I know he's dead. He didn't get upset about that and stress because he was going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. That wasn't hard for him. He was sleeping in the boat when the storms came. And the disciples wake him up and say, don't you care that we're perishing? And he's like, oh, you of little faith. And he stands up and says to the wind and the waves, peace be still. And they stop. I mean, Jesus doesn't get stressed out about much. But he is stressed to the point of even death, he says. And so he tells the men, you remain here and keep watch with me. And verse 39 says, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And it's incredible to me to think about Jesus at this place because he knew it was coming he knew it was coming. I mean, listen to what it says in Matthew 16, 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Matthew 20, 17 through 19, he says it again. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Even in this very chapter, even this very night, in Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says to the disciples, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. It's not like Jesus hasn't been resolute in going to the cross. He knows he needs to go to the cross. He knows it's the Father's will to go to the cross. He knows that the only way of salvation is the cross. And yet here he is at this emotional time. And he's falling on his face before the Father in humble submission to the Father and yet in desperation. I mean, he's prostrate before the Father, praying. And his prayer is, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And we hear this incredible cry of our Savior No, he wasn't trying to get out of the cross. No, he wasn't trying to to rebel against the Father. But he was dealing with some stuff that, that I want you to hear has to be dealt with. And the only way to deal with it is through prayer. I mean, one of the things that he's dealing with is this emotional, overwhelming thought of becoming the sin of the world and receiving the wrath of God on him. When he says, let this cup pass from me, he's talking about the cup of God's wrath, right? That's how he's going to be the Savior, He's going to become our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. He becomes our sin, right? So when he becomes our sin, what has to happen to him? He has to be punished for our sin. And so he knows that the wrath of God, the full wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve, that everyone that's ever walked this planet deserves, is about to be poured out on him. Matter of fact, it tells us, just so you know, about the cup of wrath, Jeremiah 25, 15 says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Revelations fourteen ten says, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I mean, he says, let this cup pass from me. He's not just saying, let this duty pass from me. Let this sacrifice pass from me. He's saying, Lord, I am going to experience your wrath. I'm going to be separated from you. He's going to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's going to be this incredible crushing blow to him to take our sin and the wrath we deserve so that by faith in him we could be saved. That's how that works. Our sins aren't brushed aside. Our sins aren't neglected. The punishment for our sin is going to be paid either by us when we reject Christ or through Christ because of what he did on the cross. It has to be. And he's saying, Lord, if there's another way, let it be. If there's an easier way, 
if there's a less costly way than all this horrific stuff piling down on me. But not my will, but your will be done. And man, I want you to see that, man, here's Christ. And he has these emotions. He's dealing with the reality of his sacrifice. He's dealing with the reality of the cost. He's got these overwhelming emotions. And if he doesn't get them in check, he's not going to be able to get his will in check with God's will. And how does he deal with his emotions? He prays. I mean, today... It's like this pandemic of emotional struggles in our nation. And I, I know with all my heart that they're as real as any kind of physical diagnosis you can get. And people are looking for answers for the emotional distress in their life. And they're looking everywhere but Christ. And Jesus, the one time in his life where he's so overwhelmed with what's going to have to happen in his life, he gets on his face and he prays, Lord, I need you. If you can make another way out of this, fine, but not my will, your will be done. I need your will in my life. So I need you to calm my emotions. I need you to control who I am. I need you to control my thinking. I need you to control my actions. That's what has to happen in Christ's life. Jesus did not have to obey. He did not have to go to the cross. Yes, it would have been horrific for him and for us if he had disobeyed, but he didn't have to. He was fully man. He could have chosen to sin. He could have chosen to rebel. I know some of you are going, oh, that's not really true. It's true, or he wouldn't be praying. He was completely human. He was completely dependent upon the Father to impact his life. And so are you and I, more so than him. If Jesus needed to pray, do you and I need to pray when our emotions are out of check, when we don't know what to do, we don't know how to handle it, and especially when we don't know how to continue walking with God? Do we need to pray? Oh, my goodness, we need to pray. And Jesus needed to ask the Father, Lord, if there's not another way, then your will be done. So, Lord, I need all that you have available to me to be obedient. Man, he was fighting for the will of God to be done in his life. And you and I need to fight. I mean, for some of us, man, fighting for the will of God is like a foreign concept. We don't want to know God's will we don't want to know God's way. We don't want to be under God. We don't want to be told by God what to do. We think that obeying God is the most offensive thing in the world. I was so blessed this morning. I was out talking to, to a couple little girls about their first week of school. And one was a kindergartner. So I was asking them how the kindergartner, you know, I was asking the kindergartner how it went. And she said, oh, good. She liked it. She kind of flitted away, you know. But her mom says, well, it probably didn't go as good as she told you. And I said, okay, why not? And she goes, well, she came home every night this week and said that her teacher was rude. And I'm like, okay, because her teacher what, told her what to do all day long. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I don't know what she thought, but she didn't think she was going to be told what to do all day long. Fair enough. But can you imagine 20 kindergartners going to school and being left alone 
and not being told what to do. Can you imagine the chaos? That's kind of like us. When we aren't under God, when we aren't living for God, when we aren't obeying God, there's all kinds of chaos and there's all kinds of problems and there's all kinds of effects. Man, there's all kinds of negative things, but here we are fighting for obedience. If Jesus is fighting for obedience, do you think you and I ought to fight for obedience? Because in obedience comes life. In obedience comes the presence of God. In the obedience comes love. In obedience comes this power that we see as we walk with God and he moves in our life. Obedience is the way to live. Obedience is the joy of life. It's not rebellion. It's not selfishness. Man, it's not worldliness. It is not. That's not where we find life. We find life when we follow the Lord God Almighty day in and day out. And he blesses our life with his presence and with his grace and with his peace and with his hope and with his direction and with his victories and with his strength. Anybody need any of those things? Lord knows I do. And I know you do too. But are we fighting for obedience in prayer? Are we winking at God and saying, God, I'm going to go over here. So why don't you come do what I want you to do in my life? Rather than saying, Lord, your will be done. Not mine. Your will be done. Man, our Savior went to the cross Because he prayed. And God gave him what he needed to keep going. Well, let's look back at the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Because he says to them, remain here and keep watch with me. Now, one of the commentaries I read said that Jesus brought these three guys for moral support. (laughs) And I laughed. Well, that's not true. Jesus' moral support was prayer. (laughs) Understand that. Yes, he might have wanted them to pray with him. He probably knew the value of people praying with him, but I really don't believe that was the core of why he brought these guys. He told these guys, I want you to watch and pray. Watch is a pretty interesting word. It really means to pay attention. It, It can mean literally to refrain from sleep. It means to stay away and see what's going on around you and be ready for what you're going to face. And so Jesus tells these guys, stay here. Keep watch with me. Keep watch for the circumstances that are happening. Of course, he's told them already he's going to go to the cross. He's told them already, you're all going to fall away from me. He's told Peter, you're going to deny me. He's told them those things, right? So they have some things that should be at the forefront of their life. Because if they love Jesus Christ, they're going to want to do God's will in this. And I promise you falling away was not God's will. And I promise you denying him was not God's will. No chance. And so he tells them to watch and pray. And then he goes on. And it says in verse 40, When he was done praying the first time, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour? Pay attention to Christ's response here. Because, like I said, praying is hard. Isn't it hard? 
I mean, even if you find the time for you to get down on your knees and to actually pray, you have to deal with all the stuff that's whirling through your head, all the things you need to do, all the things that are distracting you, all your emotional struggles, all the things that you have to clear out of your head before you're going to pray. And then you're going to pray, and it's going to be tough because the more you pray and you come into the presence of God, the more accountable to God you realize you are. And the more you realize you need to do to adjust your life to him. I mean, yeah, prayer's some real work. And we know that to be true because at College Heights, I mean, it's just, it's one of the most heartbreaking things I think I I have to encounter throughout the year. Is that when we have a time to pray, whether it's Wednesday nights at the park or whether it's on once a quarter in here during Sunday school, man, people don't show up to pray. There's some faithful ones that come to pray, which is pretty fantastic. But, I mean, for most people, they're like, no, it doesn't mean anything to me. Prayer doesn't matter to me. Prayer doesn't change anything to me. Or they think to themselves, oh, prayer is too hard, so I'm not going to come pray. And so they, they don't show up. I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to tell me how hard prayer is. It's super hard. But if you think God looks at you when you refuse to pray, when you refuse to acknowledge your need for him, when you refuse to stay awake and pay attention and pray that you might be about God's work and that you might carry out God's will, if you think God is okay with that, hear what he says. Could you men not stay awake for one hour? Could you not do the spiritual work, the battle to stand with me in this battle for God's will for one hour? Could you not pay attention to your own battles for one hour? I mean, don't you think for a second that God looks at us and goes, hey, I know you're weak, and I know you have excuses about not walking with me and about not praying to me. I know you have all those excuses, so it's okay. Don't you think for a second that he's saying It's okay. And do you know why? Because every time we fail to look to him, every time we fail to pray, every time we fail to acknowledge that he is our hope and he is our answer and he is our strength and he is our guide, every time we fail to do that, we suffer. And those around us suffer. I mean, I just talked about the greatest thing in the world is to walk intimately, daily, in obedience with the Lord God Almighty. It's the only place that we have his presence with us intimately every day. It's the only time we see his wisdom pour out of us. It's the only time we see his strength rise up in us. It's the only time when we walk with him intimately in prayer, when we walk in fellowship with him and we're saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And we're obeying Christ. That's when we have life and the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, faithfulness. I knew I missed one in there. And self-control begins to pour out of us through obedience. Jesus is fighting for obedience He's calling the disciples to fight for obedience. Obedience is life. I wonder how many times we're just 
broken and struggling because we're not fighting for obedience at all. We're not asking for God to be in control. We're just doing things our way. And we wonder where God is when there's none of that great blessing in our life when there should be. Man, are we fighting for obedience? And so he says to them, could you not keep watch for you in an hour? But then he says, keep watching and praying that you may enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, I love that Jesus doesn't just say to them, I'm, you guys, I'm disappointed with you guys. You should have been more insightful. You should have been more faithful. He doesn't just say that to them. He reminds them again, keep watching and keep praying. Keep being alert. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Pay attention to the battles that are at hand in your life. Pay attention to the struggles you're going to have. Pay attention and pray. Right? Keep watching and praying because your spirit's willing. And if you're a follower of Christ here today, I know your spirit is willing. I mean, I know that with me, you're many times saying, Lord, I want to be the man of God you've called me to be. I want to be the woman of God you've called me to be. I want to be obedient to you. I want to follow you. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to. Is that not true? We want to, but how many times though we say that, do we then have to say at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, I blew it again. I've just not followed you. I've not obeyed you. And I understand the battle was sin, but do you understand what he's saying here? Rather than stepping out of trusting God and walking in his way, he's saying to you, pay attention, stay alert, and pray. It's the difference maker. It's how we win the fight. We don't win the fight in the flesh. We win the fight in the spirit. We win the fight by praying. And yet, we don't pray. Is there any misconception about why we're struggling? We don't pray. Jesus says, pay attention and pray. You know, I think some of our problems sometimes is we actually don't think there's any battles in our life. If you have no desire to walk under the lordship of Jesus Christ, there are no battles in your life. Do it yourself. Do it your way. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy others. But there won't be any battles whatsoever. But if you really want to surrender, if you really want to obey, if you really are going to see the cost of following Jesus Christ like these guys were going to see the cost, and you're going to be faithful to Jesus in the midst of that cost, you better pray. And you better realize the battle is real. Some of us, man, it's just high time for us to put aside the world and the flesh and say, Jesus, you're the one I'm living for and get back in the fight. Well, it says he went away again a second time and prayed saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. You see a little bit of subtle change in this, right? If there's any other way, if it's possible, he says, let this cup pass the first time. This time he says, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Harry knows the answer. But God is 
is bringing him back to the place where Jesus wants to be. Jesus wants to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus wants to take the wrath of the Father upon him. Jesus wants to save us, but he's coming to the place where God's working in his life through prayer to bring him down to the place where he's ready to go and ready to obey. It says in verse 43, again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. He comes to them. What are they doing? They're still doing the same thing because their eyes are heavy. And notice, it's not an excuse. I'm not good at staying up late. Coming back from Zambia, man, I, that jet lag was crazy to me. I'd be sitting there at 7.30 and my eyes, my head is just bobbing. I'm trying to keep awake. And finally, I'm just like, let it be. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. There's no excuse not to pray. I know we have a million of them, but none of them are sufficient because we are a needy people and God is a good and gracious God. Well, he goes off again, prays a third time, but I want you to notice the change in verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And he's literally saying to them, Sleeping time was done. You had the chance to pray. And you didn't take advantage of it. And life isn't going to change and the circumstances aren't going to change. I'm being betrayed in the hands of sinners. My betrayer is coming to this very garden. He's going to walk in here. He's going to kiss me on the cheek. And they're going to arrest me. And when they arrest me, you guys are going to betray me and run away. But it's time to go. In Jesus' life, because he came to the Father and he prayed, he's ready now. He's going to walk straight to the cross from that point forward. He's going to do it by himself. Everybody else is going to leave him. But the disciples, they didn't pray. They weren't ready. And that's off they went. And I think it's in Luke. I don't know for sure. But it's one of those things that I read and I'm always haunted by. Because after Peter denies him the third time and the rooster crows, the Bible says that Jesus turned his head and looked at him. You said you wouldn't betray me. You said you wouldn't deny me. But you did. That's not life. That's not life. That's brokenness. That's sin. That's shame. That's guilt. That's not what I want. It's not what you want. It's not what we want. If you know Jesus, you want to honor him. You want to love him. You want to obey him. You want to experience that sweet fellowship that we have when we walk well with him. It's not going to happen just by accident. It's not going to be cheap. It's not going to be easy. We're going to have to determine 
that the one we want more than anything else in this world is Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to put ourselves in his presence and humble ourselves in prayer and cry out to him to be in us what we need him to be because we can't do it on our own. Here's the truth. I need to be a man of prayer more than I am by far now. And I'm sorry. It hurts me. I want to be a man of prayer. I'd ask you to pray for me to be a man of prayer. If you don't pray for anything else, pray for me to be a man of prayer. I know you need to be men and women of prayer too. Pray for yourself. Pray for our church to be a house of prayer. God didn't get it wrong. That's what we're supposed to be, a house of prayer. Because everything is going to come through prayer. And nothing much is going to come without it. And I'm sure there's some other things that God's saying to you today. Obedience is one. The other is salvation. Some of you, you've never trusted Jesus. You've never surrendered to the great gift of hope and life that comes only through Christ Jesus, who will forgive you your sins and give you eternal life. You've never surrendered. And your life reflects it. You don't have any hope. You don't have any peace. Your life is full of darkness. Your life is full of anger, rebellion. And I can say that because I know. I know. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry your life is so broken. But it doesn't have to be. You can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and know that he loves you enough to die in your place and to wash you clean from all your sins. But you got to trust him. So I'm going to pray, and then Pastor Aaron's going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask the deacons to all come up as Pastor Aaron comes up. And, but as we take this Lord's Supper, men, don't make it cheap and don't make it easy. You thank the Lord for what he's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It's, it's painful. It's humbling. It calls me to things, Lord God, that I know if you don't help me, I'm not going to get done. But you call us to life through it. You call us to see you, your great anguish, your great sacrifice that you made that we might be saved and have life. Thank you, Lord God. And you confront us, Lord God, with our own lives, our own foolishness and futility. You remind us, Lord God, that there's a an avenue of life available to us in prayer that most of us don't take advantage of. And I pray you'd make us a people of prayer. Lord, as we observe this Lord's Supper, I pray that you would call us to faith in the living hope, Jesus Christ, and celebrate what you've done for us. And I pray in Jesus' name.